0: Thank you, worship team. What a, what a privilege it is to, to sing God's praises together. My name is Bill, and I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm an elder here. And this morning, John asked me how I was doing. And I said, better than I deserve. And he said, aren't we all? You know what? If we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, aren't we all? I'm going to read John 14, 1 through 6, and then pray. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may also be and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us so. Thank you for sending your Son to die for me, to die for us, Heavenly Father, for giving us a way, Lord. Because you are all-powerful and loving. And your steadfast love endures forever. And, and Heavenly Father, forgive me for not always running to you. Forgive us for, for not for not um, keeping you in a place where, where you deserve, Heavenly Father. And Lord, I thank you for your, your faithfulness, your love. I thank you for this church, Lord. I, I thank you for uh, brothers and sisters here, Lord. I thank you for the workers. I thank you for... I thank you for the adults with kids right now heavenly father and lord i, I pray for the youth that went to lake Longren, heavenly father I, I just pray that you would continue to work in them and the teachings lord i i thank you for and may they have safe travels home lord and i thank you for that opportunity lord i pray for the churches in our ears lord that are, are and i pray that your word would be taught lord i pray that you'd be glorified heavenly father i, I pray for north shore lord and and or this this is an old church lord and i thank you for it i thank you for the the 130 years heavenly father and lord i, I just pray for the the meeting today lord that um, we would know your will and do it lord and um lord i know that it it won't be perfect until we're with you heavenly father but may we move closer to your will and know it lord i pray for the ministries here and i thank you for them i thought i pray for the truett family lord and just do a great healing there lord we don't understand loss and pain lord but i just pray that you would you would do a a healing there lord and lord i pray for healing for us lord lord for our physically spiritually emotionally lord because you are the great healer and lord today i i pray for um pastor i pray for your your word i pray that the holy spirit would be here i pray that our hearts would be open lord because you are a great god in jesus name i pray amen
1: Thank you, Bill. Well, we're continuing on today in the Upper Room Discourse, which is John 13 through 17, and we have come today to chapter 14. We begin chapter 14, but he's really continuing a conversation, Jesus has with his disciples that we, w- we saw in chapter 13. Jesus has made a couple of statements near the end of chapter 13 that have really frightened the disciples. In verse thirty-three, only hours before his crucifixion, he says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now so so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. That was scary. And if that wasn't bad enough, verse thirty six, Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. It's important for us to hear the frightened nature of the disciples because that's what Jesus is speaking to in chapter 14 when he says, let your heart not be troubled. We need to, for just a moment, put ourselves in the position of these disciples when they heard those things about Jesus going away. They had left everything to follow this Messiah. Everything in their lives for the last three years had orbited very tightly around this man, and their futures were completely, totally bound up in him. If this man leaves them, the last three years make no sense, and frankly, their lives make no sense. The future they had envisioned for themselves, who they thought they were, all of that goes up in smoke. He had been the reason and the purpose for their lives since they met him. But now, he tells them, I'm leaving you, and you can't come to me. He does promise them that he's going to come back for them, but he still hasn't told them where he's going. And he gives no timeline for any of this, except to say that his departure will be soon, whatever that means. And to top it all off, he's implied that the next few hours of their lives are going to be absolutely wretched, they're going to be so hard that their leader, Peter, will deny them three times. So in the midst of all of these great trials, Jesus is saying, I won't be with you, not to protect you, not to deliver you, not to even comfort you. You're not going to be with me, and you can't come to me. That's something like what the disciples must have felt when they heard these words from Jesus, and to which he spoke these great words of hope in chapter 14 into. Chapter 14 begins with yet another promise of Jesus, very familiar to us. Verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. That's read at countless funerals to give assurance to those who've lost believing loved ones, and that's certainly appropriate. But that's obviously not the reason Jesus says it here, and we need to understand it here within its original context if we're going to rightly apply that word to us in at least specific and meaningful ways. Another very familiar claim of Jesus is in verse 6, where he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. In our day, we tend to hear those words as a proof text that Christ is the only way of salvation. Again, not inappropriate, but for us to rightly apply this incredible claim to our lives, we have to see what he meant by it here in John 14 to those disciples in the upper room. The message of these opening verses that Bill read it's, it's a call to scared and anxious disciples to live confidently in Christ without fear. To live confidently in Christ without fear. That's what we need to take away from this because we too can be scared and anxious disciples when our money runs out or when we lose our job or when kids or family members do something that deeply wound us, when there's a loved one that dies or falls gravely ill all of the sudden. Jesus here gives... Two major reasons why those in Christ, even when the bottom seems to have dropped out from under us, are to live not in fear, not in anxiety, but in triumphant faith. Two reasons. That's what he tells us here in these six verses. If you dig down deeply into your hearts enough, the root of all of our fears is really the same as it was for the disciples. And that is, we're afraid that God will desert us or has deserted us, that he won't be there the way we want him, when we need him. We know that because if we genuinely believed in our hearts that an all-powerful God who cannot be thwarted at all, a God who deeply loves us, who wants only the best for us all of the time, that that God is with us and is in absolute control of all of our circumstances, if we believed all of that, then we'd never be anxious. If we really believed that. Because all the bases are covered. We tend to respond in crisis, at least initially, a bit like they did, as if we're all alone. We try to manage the pain and confusion on our own, and we're quickly overwhelmed by it. And that's what the disciples felt here. When life is going well, we tend to find it easy to believe that Jesus is with us. He's taking care of us. But when crisis comes, our tendency is to forget that and assume that we have to go on a mission to go find him. The first reason we're to live confidently in Christ is in verses 1 to 3. Let me read it just one more time. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. We need to unpack this just a little bit. First, we see that the antidote to our fear, he says right here, is to believe. To believe in the Father and to believe in Jesus. So the command implies that the reason their hearts were troubled is because they weren't believing. That's the issue. They needed to believe. When our hearts are troubled or anxious, the root cause is not the trial that is overwhelming us. It's because we're not believing something. We're not believing something about God. We're not leaning on him. The disciples were anxious because they faithlessly assumed that Jesus was going to leave them all alone and that their lives would be ruined and that the last three years would just be a pleasant memory. The fact that that would render null and void all of the promises, the wonderful promises he's made to them already about their future, in their unbelief, they'd forgotten all about that. Okay? Also, don't miss another implication of what Jesus says here when he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Notice that he so closely associates himself with the Father that he implies that believing in the Father is equal to believing in him. If a pastor or church leader or Sunday school teacher were to tell you, believe in God, believe also in me, you would feel rightly incensed because the leader is asking you to place trust in him at the same level of urgency as you're trusting God. But that's exactly what Jesus does here. He intends that we place him on the same level of trustworthiness as God. This is one of the many times in the Gospel of John, and especially in this discourse, that Jesus is making an implicit claim that he's God. So the first reason from this text, which may not be apparent until we unearth it just a little bit, why we can live confidently in Christ, is because of the security that genuine disciples can enjoy through Christ's work on the cross. Where do we get that? Where does he mention the cross here in these first six verses? Let's find out. After telling them to believe in the Father and in him, he then suggests where he's going. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? That's where he's going. His Father's house to prepare a place for them and all who believe, okay? This verse has been horribly misunderstood because of some very poor translation work. The King James translates this word that should be translated rooms, it translates it as mansions, okay? Terrible translation. It was influenced by a wrong understanding of the Latin version of this verse. It's not even close to an accurate rendering of the original Greek word, and yet for many of us, myself included, When I think of John 14, 1, 2, I think about mansions. And that has a terrible impact about how I understand this text because it's, it's not at all related to that. The room translated rooms just means dwelling place. That's all it is. Nothing fancy about this at all. The same word is used a bit later in verse 23. Jesus is speaking and he said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home. Same word. Make our dwelling place with him. He's not saying that our bodies are mansions and that the Father and Jesus are going to live in them. No, he's he's saying they're going to inhabit these bodily dwelling places, these temples of flesh and blood. When Jesus speaks of the Father's house, he's using a metaphor to describe where he's going. He's going to his Father, and his point is to try to communicate to the people that the disciples needn't worry about not being able to follow him because he's going to make preparations for them to follow him and there's plenty of room available in his father's house. That's the message. When you plug in mansions, you get an entirely different understanding. And an entire Christian tradition, along with some really bad gospel music and a subculture, has been built around the flawed notion that believers upon their deaths... We'll spend eternity in our own individual mansions that Christ has been painstakingly building for 2,000 years. As if someone who spoke the universe into being with one word needs 2,000 years to build a stinking mansion. Okay? <laughs> Jesus was a carpenter, but he's not building mansions in heaven. Completely misses the point. Jesus will later tell us what is the most important thing that is awaiting his disciples in heaven, and it's not a mansion. Twice in verses 2 and 3, Jesus speaks of him going to prepare a place for the disciples to go. Well, if the Lord does not mean that he's going to be busy polishing the gold in our mansions, what does it mean? Well, the best way to get at this is to ask this question. What preparations does Jesus have to make in order to get his people to heaven? See, then it becomes clear where he's going, doesn't it? The preparation he's talking about here is he has to go to the cross. That's what he's saying. This is not about Jesus putting the finishing touches on our final habitation. It's about him doing the work of redemption necessary to forgive our sins and make us righteous before a holy God. That's what he means when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. He means, I go to die on a cross for you. That's what he's saying. The ground of our security, the basis of our confidence in life is this preparation, the cross, and then later the empty tomb. When you strip away the metaphor about housing, Jesus is simply saying to his scared disciples, don't worry, trust in the Father, trust in me. The reason I'm going away is because in order for me to make preparations for you to follow me, I have to die on a cross and stay dead for three days. You will follow me to heaven later on, because there's plenty of room in my Father's house. That's where he's going. So in verses 2 and 3, Jesus reveals the ground of our security, the basis of our confidence in Christ, is his saving work on a cross to forgive us our sins. So why should that quiet our anxious hearts in the midst of whatever trial we may be going through? How does that relate? Well, think about it. Our sin before a holy God who must punish sin. Okay, So we're sinners before a holy God who must punish sin. That is by far, that is light years ahead of every other problem we face. That is by far the biggest problem that any human being faces. Nothing else even approaches it. The worst crisis you have ever faced are currently facing, or will ever face does not even approach the crisis that your sin presents to you. If the crisis of our sinfulness is resolved, then from an eternal perspective, the rest of life is details. You understand that from an eternal perspective? Spiritually speaking, our sin is like the terminal illness. Every other problem, by comparison, is a runny nose. Okay? The point is, if Jesus has resolved what is by far our greatest crisis, this is a greater to the lesser argument, we can surely trust him to resolve, give hope in, work through, or deliver us from any other problem. We don't live in that eternal perspective nearly often enough, but when we do, the trials of this life grow strangely dim. The second half of verse 3, he takes it one step further. He says, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. John very seldom mentions the second coming in his gospel. But we know that's what he means here, because Jesus never came back to earth to take the disciples to himself. So this is a promise not yet fulfilled. Though they went into him in spirit when they died at his second coming, he's going to come to get them and then get his genuine disciples in bodily form when he, through the Holy Spirit on the last day, resurrects his disciples so that they can physically be where he is, which is what he's talking about here. Don't miss that Jesus' stress here, his emphasis is on the disciples being where he is. This is crucial. That's what was the most important thing for the disciples and for Jesus, being with each other. The truth that we will one day be with Jesus forever allows us to see every other trial from an eternal perspective. If Jesus has done the work to secure for us an eternity of pleasure and bliss at his right hand, then he can certainly handle whatever else we need to go through here. This emphasis on being with Jesus for all eternity is important for another important reason. For instance, when you hear some professed believers, people who claim to be Christians, talk about heaven, their words completely betray this priority of Jesus. They speak with the most excitement and the most sense of anticipation about seeing their dear departed believing relatives, or of never having to experience pain or aging, or even being able to endlessly enjoy their favorite hobby, as if heaven were a great eternal vacation. The Griswolds do heaven. Again, completely misses the point. Jesus tells us what is glorious about heaven. I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's heaven. That's why we should long for heaven. The attraction of heaven should never be the heavenliness of the destination. The supreme draw of heaven is to be with the Lord Jesus. Who cares about seeing old Aunt Agnes or traipsing around on streets of gold when you have the Lord of glory that you can be with? Nothing else matters. Paul says in Philippians 1.23, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. See, it's being with Christ that's far better than this world. And this is amazing coming from Paul, because Paul had lived an extraordinarily difficult life. Much of his last 30 years were spent either in prison, being brutally persecuted, or running from persecution. If anyone would have yearned for a heaven where there was no pain or persecution or trial, it would have been Paul. But his desire for heaven isn't to be free of any of those things, or to see his late uncle Mordecai, it's... To be with Jesus. When a person who is a professed believer says things like I want Jesus to come back, but I don't want him to come back until after I'm married or until after I have children or or grandchildren, until I live to be such and such or have this experience, what they're telling you is that their hearts are in love with this world. Those fallen things of earth are more important to them than being with Jesus. We with Jesus is like Jesus is coming back this afternoon. Great, who cares about anything else? That's the point. If someone tells you you can have a new car or a bucket of slime, most of us are going to choose the car, right? And yet the distance between being with Jesus and even the best experience in this life, marriage or children or whatever, is far greater than the distance between a car and a bucket of slime. What was troubling the disciples was the fear of not being able to be with Jesus, So the ground of our security, the reason we can live confidently, secure in Christ every day is because the preparation Jesus made at Calvary enables us to be with him forever and gives us an eternal perspective on life. A second reason we can live confidently in Christ without fear is because by God's grace we've discovered that Jesus is the one valid means by which people get to heaven. Again, this may not be intuitive, just hang in there. In verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas, who's speaking for the other disciples, essentially says, we don't get it. You said you're going away, that you're making preparations so that we can join you, and then you're going to come get us, but we still don't know where you're going. How can we know the way to get there? As happened so many times in the Gospels, both with the disciples and the Pharisees, Jesus is talking about a spiritual reality here. Getting to heaven by way of the cross, that's what he's talking about. The disciples are looking for a material reality. They're looking for a place on a map that they can get to, that they can navigate to. Okay? Jesus begins to enlighten them that he's not talking about a physical destination when he answers Thomas' question, which his question is clearly purposed at receiving directions. Tell us how to get there, Jesus. Jesus again points to the spiritual reality by pointing to himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, in effect, the way to get to where I'm going is not by a map or a route. It's by a person. It's through me. The only way to get to the Father is through me. That is, out of thousands of possible means by which people try to find eternal life, by God's grace alone, followers of Christ are walking on the one, single, solitary, right path. By God's grace, we're not wandering through a spiritual maze of false religions that terminate in hell. Jesus has shown us the way to God, and it's through him. Again, if Jesus has revealed to us the only way to heaven for salvation, if he's done that for us, when he hasn't done it for so many other people, we can trust him. We can trust him to get through whatever it is we're going through now. Okay, This is not only profoundly encouraging to believers if we think about it in that light, It is, as we all know, arguably the most controversial, politically incorrect statement that Jesus ever made, especially in our day, because in one sentence he makes a dead-end street out of every other religion or creed or belief. They terminate in hell. He implies that any other way that we can take to get to heaven is utterly futile and hopelessly misguided. He implies that all those people who are trying those ways are horribly deceived about the most important matter conceivable. In spite of all their good works, in spite of however sincerely they're practicing their religion, all these deceived people will end up in torment. If they don't trust in Christ alone and the preparation he's made on the cross through the, for them, then they're going to be condemned. Condemned. It's no wonder people think this is an arrogant claim. And it would be unimaginably arrogant, but for two things. First of all, it's true. Now, it can be true and you can still be arrogant about it. But because it's true, you don't have to be arrogant about it. People thought Einstein was terribly arrogant when he proposed the theory of relativity when he hadn't given any evidence for it. He just happened to be right took away some of the pain of what people perceived as arrogance. But the other reason is not only true, is because the only way that people can have this path, have this answer, is the utterly undeserved grace of God. We didn't do anything. You can't do anything to earn it. Which that takes, pulls the rug out of any potential for genuine arrogance. Also, we should see through the claim. We should see through the claim that many people make when they're arguing against this. They say things like, how dare you think that Jesus is the only way to God? That is so exclusive. There are obviously many paths to God. We need to begin to hear the arrogance in that position. Okay? C.S. Lewis, Tim Keller, many others point out the same dynamic about that argument that we need to start seeing. And that is, People who criticize Christianity for its exclusive claims are being every bit as exclusive in their claims. Let me explain. When someone tells us that there are many paths to God, not one, they're not being inclusive and open-minded. What they're really saying is, there are two ways to look at spiritual reality, yours and mine, and I'm right. What they're saying, and by implication what they're trying to convert us to, just as much as we're trying to convert them to, is of all the ways, of both ways to see spiritual reality, me and my many paths to God argument, or you and your single path to God argument, I am exclusively right, you are wrong. Therefore, you need to drop your intolerant, closed-minded belief system and adopt my much more tolerant one. That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying because you can't get away from a binary either-or either or choice when truth claims are concerned. Okay? Someone's right and someone's wrong. The difference is we admit that our claims are exclusive. They don't. They think they're being open-minded. They're being every bit as exclusive as we are. There are two ways to look at this, my way and your way. I'm right. You're wrong. That's an exclusive claim. Because this issue is so important, let me give you quickly, quickly, three reasons why Jesus' claim as the exclusive way to heaven has to be, has to be valid. First, 4,000 years of redemption history leading up to Jesus' appearance unmistakably point to this truth. 4,000 years of redemptive history leading up to this point unmistakably point to the fact that Jesus has to be the only way to God. If Jesus is wrong here, okay, It's not simply a matter of him making one exaggerated statement, okay? It means the central truth of the Bible, with its perfectly coherent and consistent message, gradually revealed by God over 4,000 years of redemptive history. All of it's got to be bogus. We have to remember that God revealed his exclusive one and only plan to solve humanity's sin problem in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3, one man will come and crush the serpent. So after Genesis 3, the next 40 centuries of redemptive history gradually prepare us for the revelation of Jesus Christ and his mission as one way to God, the one way to God to die for our sins. So the Old Testament prophets, the priests, the kings, the sacrificial system, the law, the promises, they all point to the fact that God has one single plan to redeem humanity, and it's through the person of the Jewish Messiah Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God taken away, who takes away the sins of the world. If Christ isn't the only way to heaven, then the entire Bible is a fraud, and its central message is a lie. If this claim of Jesus is not true, we're simply not able to say that Jesus was a great moral teacher and that the Bible has great life lessons for us. The whole thing is a sham if it isn't true. Okay. second reason Jesus has to be the only way to God is because God is holy and must judge our sin, and there's only one way a sinner can be forgiven and made righteous, Jesus and his death on the cross. No other world religion has a definitive solution to our sin problem. Do we understand that? They try. No other definitive solution. No other religion makes a sinner acceptable to a holy God. They try to bridge that gap, Only Jesus says, I'm doing it, and he did it. That makes him the only possible way to live eternally before a holy God who hates sin and must punish it. A third reason Jesus has to be the only way to God is because if Jesus isn't the only way to God, then based on what happened on the cross, the God of the Bible is unspeakably cruel, and his son is a cosmic fool. Remember what happened on the cross. God the Father poured out his holy wrath for our sin on his Son, and he punished him as a substitute sacrifice for all who would believe. If there were an alternate way to get to heaven other than Jesus, then that unimaginable wrath and agony the Father inflicted on his Son, that didn't need to happen. And if it didn't have to occur, then the father unnecessarily crushed his son, which would make him a divine child abuser. It also means, if there are other ways to God, that Jesus, who believed he was the only way, was not only deluded and self-deceived, he must have been a fool because he received the immeasurable punishment from his father for no reason. Okay? So people can't simply, with legitimacy, say things like the Bible has many good things to say, and Jesus is a wonderful model, a prophetic figure, but he's certainly not the only way to God. He's one of many paths. In our culture, those kind of statements are assumed to be thoughtful and refined. They're idiotic if you understand the story of the Bible. Jesus Christ, is if he's not the only way to God, then both the Father and the Son, as presented in the Bible couldn't be trusted to run a city council meeting, much less the universe. A God as unspeakably cruel as the one people imply he is when they deny the exclusivity of Jesus as a savior is not someone you would ever trust, much less worship or give your life for. The truth is, though it's not politically correct, though it will make people think that you are narrow-minded, bigoted for believing it, there cannot possibly be any other way to God except through the crucified, risen Son of God. We shouldn't be embarrassed about saying that and believing that. It's the only way. Two quick points of application. Earlier we said the reason we don't have to be anxious about the trials in our life when crisis hits is because Jesus' death on a cross has addressed what by far is our biggest crisis, our need for the forgiveness of sin. The reason is because Jesus' death is the one enemy we all face. And whether death is a gateway to glory or a highway to hell depends on whether our sins are forgiven. So Jesus' death completely completely resolves our death problem and that's important because the fear of death is the granddaddy of all fears. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The fear of death enslaves people all their lives unless they're completely deceived, and some people are just completely deluded, they're not comfortable thinking deeply about their own deaths because they fear death. But when you get right down to where the rubber meets the road, how does Jesus' death help you live without fear? And the answer is the same as we've been saying. If Jesus has solved the death problem for you so that you can stare into its face with no fear, then you can stare into the face of anything without fear. Right? Right? the greater to the lesser. Are you feeling fear of anything? Put your eyes back on the cross, and remember that on the cross Jesus liberated you from your greatest fear, and therefore all the other fears have to follow, or they can follow. Compared to where we spend eternity, all other fears and anxieties, they just aren't worth mentioning. A second point of application, if it's true that Jesus is the only way to heaven, why aren't we telling more people about him? The entire world population, everybody we know apart from Christ is helplessly plummeting to their eternal deaths and the church is the only group that has a parachute. We're the only ones that can give them a parachute. We know Jesus is the only way. God has mercifully, with no credit to us, opened our eyes to believe this glorious truth. Why aren't we more consistent in telling others we don't know or believe it? We have to remember that in hell there is no good thing. Apart from whatever you think about whether the fire is real or metaphor, whatever, forget about that for right now. There's nothing good in hell. There's no good sounds. There's no good sights. Everything's black and white. There's nothing good in hell. Nothing. Not one thing. And people are going to be there forever. Even if that were the only truth about hell that the Bible tells, that should be enough to cause us to say Jesus is the only way and not really be all that concerned about whether they think we're a bigot because we're loving them. Finally, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, if you're still living for the things of this world rather than following Jesus as your Savior and your Lord and your greatest treasure, I hope you've been reminded of the eternal crisis that you will face at your death. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so come to him in faith confess to him that you're a sinner, that you're in desperate need of him and that you want to live for him and not yourself. God grant to all of us the grace to trust Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Father, these are glorious truths, so encouraging. And yet, God, when something in our life happens that's unexpected, we seldom run to them. As quickly as we should. We do exactly what the disciples did. We become anxious. We become fearful. We wonder how on earth we're going to get out of this mess or how on earth this is going to work out. Father, help us to look to Jesus and help us to live life with an eternal perspective. If you've whooped every other enemy, the ones that we face today, which are tiny by comparison, are just not a problem. Father, help us to live life in the logic of an eternal perspective so that Jesus Christ might be honored through a people who are not anxious and who are not fearful, but who are trusting in him as the way, the truth, and the life. We pray all these things for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.